the gospel as gift righteousness. How does God feel about you right now? And how do you determine that? Do you base your answer on what kind of week you've had? How consistent your quiet times have been? Whether you've been nice to your children? For many years, qualifications like these drove my response. If I'd had a good week, a real Christian week, I felt close to God. When Sunday came around, I would feel like lifting my head and hands in worship, almost as if to say, God, here I am. I know you're excited about seeing me this week. If I'd had a stellar week, I loved being in God's presence and was sure God was pretty stoked about having me there too. But the opposite was also true. If I hadn't done a good job of being a real Christian, I felt pretty distant from God. If I'd fallen to some temptations, been a jerk to my wife, dodged some easy opportunities to share Christ, with, was stingy with money, forgotten to recycle, kicked the dog, etc. Well, on those weeks, I felt like God wanted nothing to do with me. When I came to church, I had no desire to lift my soul up to God. I was pretty sure he didn't want to see me either. I could feel his displeasure, his lack of approval. That's because I didn't really understand the gospel, or at least I had forgotten it. The gospel. The gospel is that Christ has suffered the full wrath of God for my sin. Jesus Christ traded places with me, living the perfect life I should have lived, and dying the death I had been condemned to die. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that he actually became my sin so that I could literally become his righteousness. St. Althanasius called the, this the great exchange. He took my record, died for it, and offers me his perfect record in return. He took my shameful nakedness to clothe me with his righteousness. When I receive the grace in repentance and faith, full acceptance becomes mine. He lived in my place and died in my place, and then offered to me a gift. Theologians call that gift righteousness. That means that God could not love me any more than he does right now, because God could not love and accept Christ any more than he does, and God sees me in Christ. God's righteousness has been given to me as a gift. He now sees me according to how Christ has lived, not on the basis of what kind of week I've had. Christ's salvation is 100% complete and 100% the possession of those who have received it in repentance and faith. That's what we confess in the first part of the gospel prayer. In Christ, there is nothing I can do that would make you love me more and nothing I have done that makes you love me less. Just let that sink in for a moment. Right now, if you are in Christ, when God looks at you, regardless of your situation, he sees the righteousness of Christ. If we really believed that, not only with our heads, but also with our hearts, it would change everything in our lives. A new way of approaching God and life. Imagine if you could say this to God. God, here is why I think you should hear my prayer this week. I concluded a 40-day fast, and during the time I met Satan in the flesh, stared him down, and resisted all his temptations. And then I suffered unjustly at the hands of sinners, but did so without complaint or the first flash of selfish anger. The only time I opened my mouth was to forgive those that were doing that to me. Also, I walked on water, healed a blind guy on the spot, and fed 5,000 hungry men with a loaf of bread. According to the gospel, that is exactly what you can and should say. Jesus' death has, been, has paid for every ounce of your sin.
His perfect life has now been credited to you. In light of that, do you really feel like you could make God more favorable to you by doing your quiet time every day? Christ's obedience is so spectacular, there is nothing we could do to add to it. His death so final that nothing could take away from it. Scripture says that we are not to come into the presence of God timidly or apprehensively, but with boldness. The boldness that comes from knowing that God sees us according to the accomplishments of Christ. For most of us, that is completely counterintuitive. Martin Luther said that our hearts are hardwired for works righteousness. That is the idea that what we do determines how God feels about us. Unless we are actively preaching the gospel to ourselves daily, we fall back into works righteousness. Satan's A-game. Do you know who loves to push us to evaluate ourselves according on how well we've done? Our enemy, Satan. Satan, believe it or not, loves to convict us of our sins. That's one of his names, the accuser of our brethren. One of Satan's most effective weapons, I believe, is making us forget the identity the Father has declared over us in Christ and basing our sense of approval on how well we've done. You can actually see that played out in the life of Jesus. When Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness, he tried to redirect Jesus' attention to the Father's declaration on to other sources of validation. Since you are the Son of God, embedded in that question is a doubt. The enemy was implying, well, since you are the Son of God, Messiah boy, shouldn't you be able to make things different? Why would the Son of God be out here in the desert all alone? Shouldn't you be able to make bread from the stones or have the angels catch you when you fall? What was significant about that was the Father had just declared over Jesus in the previous chapter, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Rather than feasting on the Father's declaration, the enemy wanted him to look to the other forms of validation for his divine sonship. Jesus told the enemy that he did not need bread or protection to prove he was the Father's Son. The Father's declaration was sufficient. If there were ever a time for Satan to bring out his A-game, this would have been it. Don't you think it is significant that Satan began his A-game by trying to get Jesus to take his eyes off the identity the Father had declared over him and to seek validation in other ways? Satan's approach to us is the same. Satan's most effective weapon is to take our eyes off of what God has declared over us in the gospel. Did you catch that? Satan's primary temptation strategy is to try and make us forget what God has said about us and to evaluate our standing before God by some other criteria. A lot of times when we think about spiritual warfare, we think of it in terms of strange paranormal phenomena. People levitating six feet above their beds, their eyes rolling in the back of their heads and foaming at the mouth, singing back-masked heavy metal music. Does Satan do stuff like that? I wouldn't put it beneath him. But I'm pretty confident that's not his main strategy. He attacks our identity in the gospel. Satan's one direct shot at Jesus didn't include levitation or Ouija boards, nor did he show Jesus pornographic pictures out in the wilderness. He redirected Jesus' mind away from God's declaration over him. And his questions, of course, had a ring of truth in them. Why would God leave his son alone in the desert? Satan's questions always have a ring of truth in them. Our enemy, for example, will correctly point out our failures. Sometimes, he helps us see how badly we're doing at being a Christian by showing us someone who is much a better Christian than we are. 
Wow, did you hear how much scripture that guy knows? That's what a real Christian sounds like. But you, your Bible knowledge is pathetic. Other times he puffs us up with pride. At least you don't struggle with jealousy like she does. Either strategy is effective because in either case, we take our focus off of Christ's gift righteousness and put it onto ourselves. And comparison with others leads to two of Satan's favorite sins, pride and despair. Pride leads to hardness of heart toward God and hatred of others. Despair leads us to depression, fear, and indulgence in the lusts of the flesh. This is the cycle he loves to have us in. Both start with unbelief of the gospel. When Satan takes our eyes off of the declaration spoken over us at the gospel, we lose the security and satisfaction we have in the loving approval of our Heavenly Father. The gateway is then opened for all other temptations. Jesus responded to these temptations by speaking confidently of the Father's approval of him. Jesus put faith in God's word. He maintained his beloved sonship even in the face of great trial and doubt. We will overcome the enemy in the same way. So get this clearly. Both Satan and the Holy Spirit will point out your sin, but they do so in entirely different ways and for entirely different purposes. I've heard it said like this. Satan starts with what you did and tears down who you are. The Holy Spirit starts with what Christ has declared over you and helps you rebuild what you did. Satan beats us down with our failures. Jesus calls up into our identity. Jesus starts with the perfect state he has purchased for us by his death and uses the power of his resurrection to bring us into conformity with it. Each day, Jesus says to us, You are my beloved child. I am pleased in you. Now live that way. Satan, on the other hand, says, Look at you. Look at the condition of your circumstances. Look at how poorly you're living. There is no way you are God's beloved child. Which voice are you going to believe? There's an eternity of difference between them. When my oldest daughter, Karis, was six years old, she was very timid, and I couldn't get her to try anything new. New foods, new playgrounds, rides at the fair, skydiving, bear hunting, cave spelunking, none of it. I'd encourage her to try something, and she'd say, I'm scared, Daddy. I don't want to. I talked to her several times about the need to be brave. One day, she and my four-year-old daughter, Allie, and I were riding in the car talking about the state fair coming to town. I said, maybe this year, Karis, we can do the Ferris wheel. In my rearview mirror, I could see fear growing her, her eyes. No, Daddy, she said. I can't. I don't want to. I said, Karis, you know, you're just going to have to be brave. Sometimes you just have to try new things. It was not like I was asking her to go through that creepy clown exhibit or anything. She looked down and said, I know, Daddy. Sometimes I feel like I'm just a big scaredy cat. Honestly, I was a little frustrated at this point, and I said triumphantly, That's right, Cars. Sometimes you are a scaredy cat, and you'll never go anywhere in life until you become brave. My four-year-old Allie, who was listening to all of this, looked over at her and with the sweetest, most sincere expression, and she said, No, Karis, you are not a scary cat. You are my big sister. I felt like someone had slapped me in the face with a two-by-four. I thought, great. My four-year-old is the voice of the Holy Spirit, and I am the voice of Satan. Satan has tricked us, so many of us, into believing his voice is actually the voice of the Holy Spirit. We've grown so accustomed to the voice of condemnation 
that we think the only thing the Holy Spirit ever says to us is, stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it. What's wrong with you? You're terrible. He speaks altogether different. I have made you, my child. I have taken away all your sin. I could not approve of you more than I do right now. Live that way. Think of what Jesus said to the woman caught in the act of adultery. He said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. What is most significant about his statement is its order. Promise first, command second. Neither do I condemn you precedes go and sin no more. We almost always try to reverse those. We say, if you can manage to go and sin more, no more, then God will accept you. God, however, motivates us from acceptance, not toward it. Jesus' affirmation would give this woman the security that could free her from her destructive relationship with sex. Without that, she'd never truly break free. God's approval is the power that liberates us from sin, not the reward for having liberated ourselves. Embracing your new identity. Many people can't shake some failure that stains their past. Perhaps there is a voice inside that whispers to your soul, See? That proves it. Look at what you did. You were a failure. You are no good. That is the voice of your enemy. What must you do? Embrace your identity in the gospel. In Christ, God couldn't love you any more than he does right now. Maybe you're not as successful as you always thought you'd be. Maybe you feel like you let your parents, your family, or yourself down. Maybe you sense a general spirit of disapproval over your life from co-workers, your friends, your spouse, your parents, and from God. In a thousand different ways, they tell you, you're not good enough. You're a disappointment. Preach the gospel to yourself. You must tell yourself that because of Jesus, you have the absolute approval of the only one whose opinion really matters. Maybe you have the opposite problem. Maybe you've always been a winner. You've always compared favorably to everyone else, and so your self-esteem is high. I've seen that carry a lot of people far in life, until they finally meet someone better than them, or they face a failure. If you find your identity and your success, you're going to go through cycles of pride and despair. You're proud and domineering when you are on top, and you annoy everyone. Yet you also live in a constant state of paranoia, always worried about someone taking away your success. If this is you, preach the gospel to yourself. Remind yourself that God's acceptance is all that matters and that it lasts forever. It has been given to you as a gift earned by Christ, not by you. There's no room for pride. Maybe you are disturbed at how few of the fruit of the Spirit are present in your life. Do you ever think, how would anyone who is truly saved be as messed up as I am? I think that sometimes. When I look into my heart, I still see a frustratingly small amount of generosity displaced by an overwhelming amount of selfishness. Jealousy and pride still pop up like weeds. When I start to base my spiritual identity on how much progress I have made, I start to despair. My identity and my security are not in my spiritual progress. My identity and my security are in God's acceptance of me, given as a gift in Christ. And that's good, because if anything, I am more, not less, aware of my sin than I was ten years ago. Get this, that is spiritual progress. To grow in awareness of the depths of sin God has saved you from is growth in the gospel. Do you worry a lot? Worry sp springs from not being convinced of a sovereign God's absolute love for you. 
Worry disappears when you realize that God loves you unfailingly and will let nothing interrupt his plans for your good. You see, to all of these emotions, fear, insecurity, false confidence, despair, worry, we must preach the gospel. We must tell ourselves daily that there is nothing we could do that would make God love us more, and nothing we have done makes him love us less. Less, and his love is perfectly in control of our lives. Our sin and our failures have not, and can never again, separate us from him. He has put them away forever, as far as the east is from the west. We have been credited, once and for all, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He has said to us in Christ, You are my beloved child, in you I am well pleased. I will never leave you or forsake you, and surely goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life. You will dwell in my house forever. Abide in Jesus. Have you felt those words in the depths of your heart? Abiding in Jesus means reminding ourselves constantly that there is nothing we could ever do that would make God love us more, and nothing we have done that makes him love us less. What about if you gave away all your money? Wouldn't he love you just a little bit more? Nope. What if you went to live on the foreign mission field? No again. What if you finally began to treat your spouse with grace? Nada. What if you took out the trash for her like she asked? She might love you more, but God wouldn't. What if you went one full week without a single lustful thought? God's acceptance of you is based on the fact that Christ went a lifetime without sinning against him in even the slightest way. Now you are in him and he is in you. Thus, God could not love you more than he does right now because he loves Christ perfectly. You must dwell on this great truth daily, sometimes hourly, sometimes every minute. Is it the only way to drive out fear, unbelief, and temptation? Why so often? Because again, you are hardwired for works righteousness. When you're not deliberately thinking gospel, you've probably slipped back into self-justification mode. It's a lot like the plastic rodents in that whack-a-mole game you play at the fair. Just when you've knocked one down, another appears from a different place. The moment we take our eyes off the gospel, those rodents of self-righteousness and self-condemnation spring back up. So we must pound them with the counterintuitive truth of the gospel. God's acceptance is given to us in its entirety as a gift we receive by faith to praise and glory of God. Make your home in that awareness. As you do, you will abound in fruitfulness. So I'd encourage you to pray some form of this prayer daily, starting now. In Christ, there is nothing I can do that would make you love me more, and nothing I have done that makes you love me less.